Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. Today on the Real Self University podcast, my guest is Dr. Jonathan Kalbersh, who's based in North Carolina. Good morning, Dr. Kalbersh. How are you? Good morning, Eva. Doing great. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us today. Will you tell us a little bit about your practice and how you ended up there in the Carolinas? Sure. I'm a facial plastic surgeon, and I came back to Carolinas. This is where I grew up. I grew up in South Carolina. My practice, I kind of followed the Galen McCullough system. I tried to create a center and solo practice, the Quad ASS Certified Surgical Suite and a Recovery Center. I've been in practice in Charlotte for eight years. So you're just about to the sweet spot. <laughs> I hear that uh, 10 years, it starts to get really good. Do you think you're there yet? Yeah, it's, it's good. I, I really enjoy the size of my practice, the breadth of cases. So I'd say eight years in, I'm, I'm in a good spot. Did you always want to be a facial plastic surgeon? When did you know that that was your calling in life? No, I did. You know, I'm ENT trained, so I thought I was going to be an ENT surgeon. Loved the field of ENT, but during exposure, uh, I just found myself drawn to facial plastics. Thought it was the best field, most creative, most unique. And so just through experience is when I decided that that's when I wanted to become a, a facial plastic surgeon. If you had gone ENT, would you have been an E, an N, or a T? <laughs> I would have been, I would have been a T. I was going to be a head and neck oncology surgeon. I was going to do the big cancer surgeries. So I think that's what I would have done. Is there any part of your world that still intersects with that at all? Just rhinoplasties, you know, just when it comes to the breathing and nasal obstruction aspects, but that's the only part of the ENT that I use on a daily basis. Okay. And so what is it that you particularly enjoy about your job today? Sure. Uh, you know, that's a really simple question with a super complicated answer because the job is so multifaceted being not only a doctor, but also being an entrepreneur and a business owner. I'm going to kind of talk about this from the non-doctor standpoint, just personally, kind of really selfishly, what I enjoy the most about my job is just gives me a sense of purpose. I think in life, you need to have a purpose at home, you know, a purpose also in kind of how you fit in society. And I just really feel like when I wake up every morning and I know that this is where I'm supposed to be, this is my niche in my life, I get a great sense of really self-worth, you know, in this field. I did a fair amount of stalking of you online and I, I noticed that you volunteer quite a bit. Is that something that's part of that outside the office part of your life? Yeah, I think that whatever you give back, you always receive way more than you ever give. So I try to give in ways that are just natural in my life. I'm really involved in the Jewish community. I'm really involved in just the, my community at large. So it's stuff that just comes really naturally as far as being involved in that way. When you are actually out there in the world interacting with people, it has a huge impact on practice marketing that you may have not expected. And so I was going to ask you if you've seen that happen. Yeah. So when it comes to community involvement, I mean, when you get involved in the community, you do it out of, you know, because it's just the right thing to do. You want to be a good steward in your community. And I think that people recognize if you're trying to be a good steward, that they're going to want to try to come back and help you in the same way. It's really not the motivation behind it, but I do think that 
again, maybe from a business perspective, if you're involved in the in giving back, that that will come back in a, I think in a karma way, and I think it will help grow your practice. I think it also backfires if you're trying to be involved for the purpose of marketing. So it's sort of this double-edged sword where you have to really be authentic and track the results of that, but not do it in a way that's overt. Yeah, I feel like in, when it comes to community involvement, you shouldn't do it with marketing at all in your mind. You just do it because it's what you care about. And if you happen to get a positive marketing out of it, then wonderful. If not, you shouldn't lose any sleep over that. So describe how you approach marketing. What do you have in place? How many people? What kind of setup do you have there? Sure. So I think about marketing in, in two ways. One, I think about marketing in just a brand and reputation standpoint. And I also think about other marketing that's pure return on investment. So when it comes to my marketing setup, I do have a marketing team based in Los Angeles. They do kind of the technical things that I'm not good at of SEO and pay-per-click and those type of things. And those things are ROI, money I put in, money I put out. The marketing branding things that I do, those are things that I do hands-on. That's what I do in office. So when I think about, you know, do I want to be in a magazine ad? Do I want to donate to a charity? You know, do I want to sponsor a, a leadership conference? Those are all things that I do just purely as, as my brand that I want to, other things that I want to be associated with as a reputational standpoint. So those type of things, I will make those decisions myself. What words would you use to describe what your brand is? It's hard when you're in this field to really come up with a unique brand because we're all so similar and there's so many fabulous plastic and facial plastic and oculoplastic surgeons. You know, I try to think as my brand is being boutique, I want to be small, I want to be warm, and I want to be inclusive. So those would be the, the words that come to my mind that I'm striving to go for. So what kinds of things have you tried on your own, either that worked or didn't work? So things that have worked for me, I, I do think magazines have worked for me. I think magazines work really well when it comes to the faces of population. I found that effective. I find social media to be effective with a younger generation and younger patients. I find that charity balls and charity auctions and just donating things and that way have been effective. Things that I, I don't really find effective, I don't really find pay-per-click with Google extremely effective. I think it's very expensive and I feel like that lead is not particularly good. I find that ultimately, I think an online video presence is important. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in online videos and your most valuable marketing is going to be beyond word of mouth is your website. You got to have a standout website. We're going to come back to video because you've done a great job with that. And most people haven't gone as far as you have in that area. But I want to go back to the magazines for a minute because traditionally, that's not something that has a good ROI. So I want to go deeper on why you are having success with magazines and if you've figured that out. I feel like that when you do a magazine, you got to put yourself in a position to be successful so you got to be in the top position. You got to be in the front page. You got to be in the back cover. 
you got to be there consistently and you really got to really do it wonderful. If you want to have the best practice and people think that you're doing a great job, then you got to have your magazine ad in that same spot and look that same way to reflect what you want it to be. So you got to go all in. You got to go all in. If you can't do a little, you know, three quarter one on page 26, I uh, find if you get the whole page and the front cover and do it really nice and really good, I think it works. If you don't do that, I've not found it to be very effective. And then did you just do that once or did you repeat it over several months? How did you approach the cadence? Yeah, so I, I do it in two separate magazines and I've been committed to both of them and I find them both effective. And in the ads itself, do you include things like before and after photos or quotes from reviews or things that traditionally drive people to have confidence and convert? I do put before and after pictures. I do not put reviews, but I do think before and after pictures are effective. I would agree with that. One of the things we've seen with Instagram actually is that there's really only three types of posts that resonate and create engagement. And one of them is to combine a before and after with a quote from a review. Mm. So you might experiment with that at some point and see if that ad variation works. Yeah. So people actually come in and tell you I saw the ad in the magazine. Oh, yeah. All the time. Mm -hmm. Well, we just gave away one of your big secrets. So hopefully no one in Charlotte is listening. That'd that'd be okay. That'd be okay. (laughs) Okay. So magazines. And you said that was specific to the face population. Do you think that's because you're putting face before and after photos in the ad? Or that's just the demographic of who's reading the magazines? I think that when it comes to ads in magazines, you have to have a specific goal that you're going for. I have found that if it's just a general ad saying, you know, this is me, this is my practice, doesn't particularly work real. But if you're actually going to say, I want to market this particular procedure or this particular laser, that I found that that result to be much better. It needs to be a targeted ad, not a general ad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the trick. Okay, so let's go to the younger demographic and the social media. Are you doing your social media yourself? It sounds like you're probably sticking your toe in the water there. Yeah, so I cross-trained my front desk person to be front desk and social media because She has that skill set. And so she runs it and coordinates it and puts up the schedule. But I'm intimately involved. We're constantly talking about it. But on a day-to-day basis, she's putting it all together. And what kind of content does she put on the schedule? The content is, I think it's just natural. It's what's happening in the practice and the before and after pictures and the experiences we're having with the patients. We document that and then I send that to her and then she makes the schedule when to plan to put that out. It is planned. It's not a take the video that moment and post it 10 seconds later. We're a little bit more deliberate than that. That's extremely important. I think a lot of people just have a haphazard way of doing their Instagram or whatever they're doing on social and that's fine if something's happening in the moment that makes sense but it's consistency just like your magazine that has the biggest impact on success so how far ahead is she planning 
she'll plan up to two weeks out. Sometimes she'll be up to even three weeks out. And obviously we can change and if we need to improvise depending on you know, something that's, that's changed. But we plan fairly far out. I like how consistent it looks. It's all in the same brand and the same colors and it's really pleasant to look at. It's really smart that you're keeping it in-house and giving her two purposes in life and leaning into those skills that she has. In a lot of cases, really, the secret to success is staying connected to what's happening yourself. And when you use a third party or an agency, it's so easy to just let it go on autopilot and then you lose that thing that the patient is looking for when they're looking at your Instagram or your other social. And so I'm also wondering if it's just Instagram that's working for you or are you seeing success in other places too? I think Instagram's the most success we've had. I think that the other ones are okay. But I think Instagram for us by far is our best social media avenue. Have you thought about trying TikTok yet? I have not. <laughs> I, I heard someone say, if, if you're not on TikTok, it's too late. And I was like, what? <laughs> no, we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to figure out how do you make TikTok professional? I don't sing and dance normally. Yeah. And I think just being in the medical field, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about TikTok, but I know I'm not going to be singing and dancing to marketing. No, I don't either. I, <laughs> it's going to be a stretch yeah. for pretty much everybody, I think. But we're going to have to start dealing with it because it's going to be the recommendation of the year, I think. Probably not for me. I may reverse myself later, but I'm not there yet. I know I have some guy coming in uh, for a console and he has like three and a half million TikTok followers or something. And my staff made me look at his TikTok and I was like, man, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> you know, as long as you look good on it, it can't hurt to try it. Yeah. I gotta look. I mean, I've done not a single thing on TikTok, so I'd have to really get into it. Well, I downloaded it and I started playing with it and you don't have to create an account until you want to, actually put something up mm -hmm. so you can play with it without them knowing really who you are yeah so if you've got an opportunity for with someone like 3.5 million followers you should probably use it as a chance to figure it out at least okay yeah so you clearly have a great staff member in place at the front desk who's helping with social media what other staff do you have how have you set that up and and how do you think about staff management in particular so I had an experience really early in my career that has really uh, changed the way that I've thought about staff and staff management. Uh, so in my second week of practice, I had one employee, and I remember thinking I was frustrated at fellowship. You know, I'm kind of the boss, and I have an employee, and you know, kind of what I say, what I want to go, that's how it's supposed to be because I'm the boss, she's the employee. That didn't go too well as they quit probably two weeks into my practice, and I was left from went from one employee to zero employees and learned a pretty hard lesson early on. So from then, I realized that my staff and employees, they don't really work for me. Uh, I really changed it around. I really work for them. You know, My goal is to try to figure out how do I now set up and make my staff successful? How do I allow them to grow at their position? And then if you can act like the hierarchy as you work for them, then I think that really creates an environment where your practice can really thrive because it thrives on people. 
I feel like my practice managed philosophy now is I don't want to be fair. I want to be flexible. Everybody needs something a little bit different. If you can really get to know your employees and figure out what they need, then you can really be a great partner with them to allow them to really become great at what you need them to be great at. So that was a long journey for me to figure that out. It also creates an office dynamic that's so much more healthy and a healthy work environment is wonderful because you want to enjoy your day. And if you come to office in an unhealthy work environment, then nobody's enjoying it. And the number one thing you come to work, you want to have a nice day. I would add the patients can tell too. And so it has a huge impact on their experience as they interact with all of you. Oh, for sure. So have you used any tools or tests or, you know, a lot of the consultants will go around and do these big personality tests with the staff and then analyze all of you. Have you tried any of that? We have. We've done through that where they, you do quests and tests and they tell you what different type of colors you are and what your personality is. And I actually found that to be more helpful because once I understood that, I actually saw it in my patients. So then when I figured out some of the personalities of my patients, I was better able to relate to my patients. So I would understand that maybe in the past, if a patient asked a whole lot of questions, I initially may think that they didn't trust me. And then I realized that's not the case. That's really just their personality. Their personality is one. They just need a lot of information. So it had nothing to do anything about me. It was really just about what their personality was. And I feel like when you can get to that place of really understanding your patient, I think it allows you to better effectively communicate with them. Yeah, I would think they feel heard when you do that. And then knowing that the doctor making them feel comfortable is the key driver of choosing the doctor for surgery, that that's a really nice little virtuous cycle that you have going So have you ever used the staff personalities to sort of act as a a substitute for you with a patient? Like this person on the staff is going to be way better with this patient than I am. So I'm going to not manipulate the situation, but maybe optimize is a better word. No, I don't think that's their role. If, If I can't get along or relate to a patient, then they're probably not a good fit for my practice. So you know, I would rather take on that responsibility. So I like to visualize what happens in the office. How many staff members do you have right now? Who's on your team? I believe 10 staff members, two front desk, two surgical assistants, one uh, RN packing nurse, one nurse practitioner, one physician assistant, one esthetician, and a patient care coordinator. So. Prior to becoming a patient, there's really only three people that they would interact with, the patient coordinator and the two front desk people. Prior to seeing me? Yeah. Yes. So they're really your your front line. They're the ones who are bonding with the patient, getting them to come in the door and credentialing you and getting them excited about becoming a patient of yours. How long have those three been with you? So I've been in practice eight years. My patient care coordinator and my first front desk person's been with me six. So after my first employee quit, the second employee was my wife who stayed for two years until I hired those <laughs> two. So those two have now become 
I guess, quote unquote, my work wives. And they've been with me for since six years. And the second front desk person's been with me for going on two years now. And how do you think about, I know you, you're really committed to making them successful. What does that look like day to day? What kinds of things do you do? I feel like the way I make my staff successful is that I'm continually, incrementally trying to push them to become better and make them feel like, you know, we're doing a good job, but we could always get better every single year, including myself. And so we're also always evaluating how can we improve our policies and our procedures. Is that a metrics-driven process? Do you use numbers to incentivize them or keep them moving ahead? No, I actually don't like using numbers. And a lot of times people use numbers as a financial number. I don't look at financial numbers as success. I think of success more in reviews or maybe patient volume or general growth. I guess I do use those numbers, but not financial in in number. I believe that staff, including myself, if you're not getting better, you got to figure out why. Is it a lack of knowledge or a lack of skill? And once you identify where the holdup is, you can identify one of those two, it can continue to allow to move forward. Certainly, I would think willingness is part of that equation too. So there's knowledge, skill, and willingness. And what I hear you saying when you tell me they've been with you for that long is there's absolutely willingness across the board. Correct. I don't have a problem. That is one issue. I do not have an issue with willingness. So I feel like if that would be an issue, then you you may want to rethink, is that a good member of your team? Mm -hmm. Learn lots of things from trainers that have come and gone through real self. And that was one of the biggest ones we ever picked up was there's a difference between willing and able and a skill that needs to be trained. Oh, yeah. And when someone's not willing and able and and that pattern is repeated, that's when you know it's time to make a change. So staff turnover is a huge issue for lots of practices. And I want to try to get you to nail down even in just like two or three little bits. What is it that makes them stay for that long? Obviously, they love you. (laughs) That's a given. You know, people don't stay in jobs where the person they work for is someone that they don't care about, especially women in our field. Just don't do that because they have to believe in the surgeon and what the surgeon is doing so that they can extend that feeling to the patient. I like to think that I'm able to retain staff for a long time because I truly value them and I truly involve them the day-to-day and big picture part of the practice. I constantly ask them for innovations, their thoughts, kind of high-level things, more than just the daily routine of coming to work. So they're involved in the decision-making. That seems to be the key. Correct. And and I think also another big piece is you have to be a flexible boss. You have to be able to meet them on and negotiate things that are important to them. And that will differ from person to person. Let's go back to photos and videos. For a lot of folks, these are really almost insurmountable challenges. So let's start with photos. 
And what I hear most often is I can't get my face patients to agree to let me use their photos. But I know you've already solved that problem because I can see how many cases you have online. And I want to ask you how you talk to patients about sharing their photos with you. I agree. I think, you know, respecting patients' privacy is important, especially dealing with the face. To me, where I found effective is that I take all my before and after photos and then I go over the after photos with them and we look at them. And if it's somebody that, you know, I'm really pleased with the results, I just comment. I just say, you know, wow, you know, this is a great result. I'm so proud of this result. You know, I would love to be able to share this result with other people. I shall respect your privacy, so please feel free to say no. And then out of that certain amount of people, when they see the results, you know, some people are like, you know, I'm proud of that too. Sure, no problem. And other people, you can kind of see them squirm in their chair. And I, those people, I say, I totally get it. I totally respect your privacy. So that is, to me, if they don't say yes initially, that's the process that I will take. I hear you say two things. One is that you're taking time to have that conversation and it's not like an offhand comment or a box that you check on a piece of paper. And you're asking yourself, and people love to do favors for doctors who they love. And then the other thing is that you're reading their body language and you're giving them permission to say no. So I just unpacked your whole process there for you. I really like that. And I think the key there. Is, and why you're having success is that you're taking time to have the conversation on your own. And then your videos, you've had almost 200,000 views in your YouTube channel from the videos that you've made. What benefits have you seen from doing that work over time? The number one answer I get from people from looking at my videos, they come into my office and we start talking and they say, I feel like I already know you. I've watched your videos and you're exactly like the guy in the videos. (laughs) And you were exposed. I don't know if this is true or not. You're going to tell me right now. You were exposed to the camera pretty early because you did a fellowship with Dr. Nassif. Was the camera always around? It was. And was it uncomfortable at first? What was that like? It wasn't uncomfortable because it had nothing to do with me. I was just on in the background so (laughs) you're a prop in the corner (laughs) i had no responsibilities there it was very helpful for me to see that and to be able to watch him on camera and how natural that he was that was a skill set that i did just learn from him just observationally so you were there for how long was that a year I ended up staying for two, but my fellowship was for a year. And I think people listening would love to hear what it was like behind the scenes. Sure. So I was actually Dr. Nassif's first fellow. So I was the first person that he trained. And when I went out there, it was actually before he became very famous. My first week out there, he invited me to meet him at a place. He didn't tell me what it was. He told me to dress nicely. And I met him at the location, and what it was is it was the premiere for The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. It was season one, and that was the first moment I had ever heard that he was actually on a TV show. And I was at the premiere, not knowing who anybody was as a total surprise. So that was just a little opening to my fellowship, which is kind of 
fun behind the scenes has nothing to do with medicine, but just kind of a cool, I guess you would consider a Hollywood story. But he didn't tell you that's what you were doing. He no. just said, dress nice and come here. That's tricky. Yes. I think behind the scenes with Dr. Nassif as a fellow, he had extremely high expectations. And quite frankly, and I don't think he would deny this, he was very hard on me, I think out of care and that he wanted me to become the best doctor that I could become. And for that, I'm, I'm very appreciative because I certainly learned a new skill set. I thought I had attention to detail until I went out there. I think that I learned a whole new appreciation for attention to detail, how to run a business, how to be successful in the most competitive area in the world of plastic surgery. And then when my fellowship was over, you know, we shook hands, we gave a hug, and he looked in the eyes and said, now we're friends. And now we've been friends and have a great relationship ever since then. But he is a, a great mentor, a great trainer. And I'd be remiss to say that he was not my only mentor or trainer out there. I had many great ones, but specifically from him, those are some of the behind the scenes aspects of it. So there was a pretty long gap between, I don't know my reality TV that well, between the Real Housewives and when Botched started. So you weren't there for Botched? I was not there for Botched. Okay. Yeah, those two shows are pretty different. One thing I really appreciate about Botched is how realistic they are and that they're presenting that I feel like the truth about surgery in a way that most of the media does not, you know. And we even fall into this with Instagram. If you if you do any surgery videos on Instagram, it, it makes it look like a procedure takes 15 minutes. Yeah. When really it might take hours and hours. Have you thought about that when you do your own videos at all? Like what you want to present to the patient in terms of being real versus being educational or what angle do you take when you set out to make a new video? As I've been in practice, I've, I've looked at videos and I want them to be educational and the fact that I want my patients to be well-informed. And then secondly, since doing them so much, I do want patients to feel like they know me before they come into the office. And I think part of that is the video process. I feel like if they feel like that they know you, they've seen their videos, then they're already ready to have the procedure before they come in and see you. And then coming in to see you is just reaffirming what they already know. So I think it's just part of the process. I also feel like I don't particularly love to read a lot of things, and I would much rather just look at a short video of something to learn. It's just easier. And I think if I have that personality, there gotta be a lot of other people out there. So that was originally my initial reason why I did it is I just thought that people would be more likely to watch a video than actually read your website. That's probably true for a large segment of the population. That does not include me. I only wanna read. <laughs> And then I, I like to joke that if you put captions on your video, I would read the video. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The funny thing is when I actually watch TV, I actually put the caption on because I like to like to read them, which is weird. I know. I don't like to miss anything. If there was a good line and, and I could read it, then I've, I've gotten the whole thing. Oh, for sure. You got to watch Game of Thrones. I didn't watch Game of Thrones with captions on until like season four. I feel like I missed the first three seasons. You're going to have to go back and watch it again. Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying about your video and First of all, the consistency, 
one of the great things I've heard you say over the course of this conversation is that what you do, you do consistently and you've been doing it that way the whole time. And that's a really smart approach because nothing works when you just do it once. Everything is about that repetition, teaching the audience what to expect from you. And that's also why real self works when you use real self correctly. And, and I would argue that that's why everything works when you use it correctly. There's really nothing you can do wrong except not do enough of something. Correct. And I feel like in addition to that, you should do what feels good to you. And you don't have to do everything. Just do what you want to do well. I could not agree more. You use real self. Obviously, you're verified and you've spent some time there. How do you see real self fitting into the strategy that you currently have? Real self, I think, is a key ingredient to marketing because real self is probably the most verified and authentic third-party plastic surgery platform. And real self has its own subset of patients and a community and an online reputation. And, you know, those patients are wonderful patients. They're well-informed, they, they're interested, and they want to have the, do the services that you're offering. So in an environment like that, you want to be, or I want to be involved in that environment. I want those patients. And so for me, it's a whole different community that you're participating in in, in an online world. And you're, all the things you're already doing, like your videos, they can be repurposed on Real Self. So you actually get more exposure and bang for your buck for the work you're already doing, which is a nice, a nice addition to the process. Okay. So I've been asking everyone two questions when we wrap up. So I want to first ask you, what is the most important thing that you've learned during this coronavirus experience? I'm going to take this from a business perspective and not a personal perspective. I think from a business perspective, the coronavirus has showed me that it's not the strong that are going to survive and thrive. It's going to be the people that are able to adapt to change are going to be the ones that are going to come out of this uh, strong and on top. So it's just made me realize how flexible you have to be. You've really got to really try to anticipate how the world is going to look and that, you know, you're just going to have to, at some level, you just have to, you know, you shouldn't fight that things are going to be different. You just got to accept it and do the best job that you can with it. So from a, a business perspective, you're just trying to do the best job you can and innovate. So what kinds of things did you do? to pivot quickly? Did you start doing virtual consults right away? Were you already doing them? I was already doing virtual consults, but obviously the volume of that dramatically increased. So the process about how we did that and the technology that we use, we significantly upgraded. I have actually found those patients to be very interested in booking surgeries during this time uh, period. We're just booking them uh, months out. Technologically wise, we're just trying to figure out how do we streamline the processes. So we're going to start doing more online. People can schedule their appointments online. We're going to do more follow-ups uh, virtually because we want to limit the amount of patients in the office. So 
I think all of those things ultimately we incorporate in our practice and end up making our practice better for the long term, probably just stimulated or accelerated innovation in our field. We'll probably look back on it and say that obviously there were very, very negative things that happened during this time, but it accelerated innovation in the field. Yeah, that's definitely the silver lining. And what's your unique superpower? I would say that my unique superpower is that I think I've got a good internal locus of control. And what I mean by that is I really feel that I'm really in the decisions and the actions that I take have a direct consequence on my life for good and bad. I think I'm willing to accept when I make bad decisions that it's probably ultimately my responsibility. And then vice versa, I think I'm pretty willing to accept if I make a good decision that that was also my responsibility. I think that's important to be able to take the good and the bad. I think that helps you as a doctor to be able to know that when you when you need to do things better and also when you have successes, it allows you to enjoy, enjoy them as well because you feel like you put in the hard work to do it. That goes all the way back to the first story you told us, which was that you, your first staff member quit after two weeks mm-hmm. and then you figured out why and changed. So that's a great way to take it full circle. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.